You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Hello, my friends. Welcome into another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, it's Bible Nerd TV, and very excited to to actually get really get the wheels moving and get things going on our series from Dr. Kurt Wise's book, Faith, Form, and Time. This is going to be the first official episode in that series. We covered the intro a couple weeks ago to it. And so I'm really excited to go ahead and move into this one next. Um, Go back and watch that introductory episode because I think it will be helpful to briefly review. This book called Faith, Form, and Time is by a creationist paleontologist named Dr. Kurt Wise. And Dr. Wise studied under the famed um, evolutionist. And uh, I mean, he he believed in a, a view called punctuated equilibrium. He was actually a very big anti-creationist, ironically, and his name was Dr. Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, he was at Harvard, and Dr. Wise studied under him and received his Ph.D. in paleontology under him. So he really does know his stuff. And at the same time, he is also a committed Christian. He believes in a natural reading of the early chapters of Genesis. He takes the flood account that is described to us in Genesis 6-8 through as having actually happened as clearly stated in the biblical record. And so as, as somebody who does paleontology, which means you have to have quite a bit of knowledge in both geology and biology, um, it's very, very interesting um, that this is a person who has this knowledge, who has these skills, and yet believes in um, creationism to the chagrin of many of his colleagues. So we're going through his book, and what, I, and what I've decided to do, again, this is kind of a hard book to get, um, so I, I do encourage you to try to go get it if you can. Um, I have a Kindle version, and you can't even buy it on Kindle anymore, it doesn't look like, which I'm not really sure why. Um, but what, rather than covering you know, every chapter of the book in detail, what I decided to do was to sort of take selections from throughout the book and bring those to you. Um, things that I thought would be very important or, or interesting uh, that he touched on that I think we could touch on here and, uh, and just see where it goes. So that's what we're doing here in this series. And the very first lesson here that I want to cover with you is from page 13 of the book. And it's the topic of intentional ambiguity intentional ambiguity. And so to set up the problem here, I'm going to kind of quote Dr. Wise, and we'll quote him throughout, and uh, and I'll give my thoughts as we go. So he says this, although God reveals himself in those things he has made and even offers himself as mankind's savior, God does not force himself on us. Although God offers truth to us, he does not force us to accept that truth. Now, why are we even talking about this? Well, again, in the context of the book, it is the book is faith, form, and time. Okay, so what we want to try to do is is understand actually the the truth of creation as it, it is seen in the physical world. But in order to do that, we sort of have to start with some theology, right? We have to start with faith. We start with the book, and then we go from there, and 
It's like I heard Dr. Uh, Todd, uh, Todd Wood and, and uh, Paul Garner uh, talking about on their podcast yesterday. Even just yesterday, I was listening to this. And they were talking about how there's often a lot of criticism toward creationists. Um, you know, because it's like, well, if you're a creationist, you already have all the answers beforehand. The Bible just kind of gives them to you. And, and that's actually not true. The Bible gives us a framework, a very vague, uh, you know, clear, but also sort of, you know, vague without too much detail outline of earth history and a couple boundaries that we have to stay within, but not much more than that. Within those boundaries, there's lots of freedom. There's tons of disagreement among creationists on how things work, and there's plenty of room to do science. So when someone tells you, oh, creationist, you know, can't even do science. Well, it's just not true. Uh, creationists can do science. There's plenty of science to be done. Again, we have very little knowledge. We have a rough outline of earth history and um, some time constraints that we need to stay within. Beyond that, there's not much else uh, to work with. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of wiggle room in there. And that's why there's so much disagreement. Okay. So, so what we have here is starting with the, starting with the supposition of, okay, well, the Bible's true. Like this is how the Bible lays things out. How do we move on from there? And, and one of the things that seems odd about the, uh, the biblical record, this biblical notion is that God gave us this creation and, and, and God gave us his his word manifested in the second person of the Trinity manifested in the uh, bringing on of a human nature in Jesus of Nazareth. And then he also gave us, of course, his word in special revelation. That is the the books that make up what what we call the Bible. So we have these things to to use as a guideline. And um, we have the creation, which which the Bible says it's just self-evident. Like you look at the creation, it's like, of course. There's a God. Like, how could you not come to that conclusion? Um, and yet, God does not force himself on us. So, so in creation, we have enough information that somebody could, could look up at the night sky and say, God, thank you. Like, yes, there is a God. There, you know, but, but at the same time, God does not force us. God does not reveal himself in this, in this way that would, that would force that would coerce people to become followers of him. God offers his truth to us, but he does not force us to accept that truth. Now, one way that I've heard other um, theologians kind of put this is like this. General revelation is sufficient for our condemnation, but not for our salvation. Let me say that again and I'll explain. General revelation is sufficient for our condemnation, but not for our salvation. In other words, we, like Romans 1, Romans 1, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, these are all great verses. And it's basically like, yeah, like through the creation, these things have been re revealed that, um, that, that there is a God and that he has created. And these things, sh you know, should be self-evident. Um, no one will stand before God and say, I didn't have enough evidence. That's not a thing that will happen because God will point to all the places where he gave his evidence and where other believers have clearly accepted that evidence. Uh, and so it's, it's sufficient for our condemnation, but not necessarily for our salvation. We need Jesus, right? We need to hear the message of Jesus. We need to respond, be given an opportunity to respond to the message of Jesus in order to be saved. And there are different ways 
that theologians work this out. Me, not to go too deep down this rabbit hole because I could go really deep, um, but I, I take the view called Molinism. And Molinism is a view that, that sort of reconciles, or at least attempts to reconcile, um, the the apparent tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will. And I think there's at least a case to be made that um, that only those who would respond positively to the gospel would actually get a chance to hear the message of Jesus. And so um, there are ways to sort of escape the claim that, uh, of, well, what, what about people who don't ever get to hear about Jesus? Again, a conversation for a different day, but I do think Christians have uh, actually a couple of, of reasonable answers to that particular question that's often raised by skeptics. But again, this intentional ambiguity. Here's another thing that, um, that Wise says about this. Going to Hebrews 11.6, he says, Hebrews 11.6 indicates that in order to please God, a person must come to him in faith. If God provided man with everything he needed in order to come by logic and or physical evidence, man would be able to come to him without faith. This would be like getting into heaven without Christ. So how could God provide just enough information or physical evidence to encourage man to come to him, yet not enough for him to get there without faith? The answer is intentional ambiguity, which prevents us from getting to God without faith, but at the same time encourages us to accept him and his word by faith. Since faith is required in order to come to God, and since we have the freedom to reject it, and since this was true even before the fall of man, it appears that God chose to create the universe with inherent ambiguity. In a sense, man's freedom of choice is built into the very fabric of creation. End quote. Now, this is a very interesting little passage of text here, okay? And it's really... I think a lot of apologists, you know, people who practice the uh, the art of apologetics, the uh, defense of the Christian faith, are are very resistant to this explanation, and unnecessarily so. So, what do I mean? Well, if you look at this idea that logic and, and physical evidence, like, are they really enough to come to Christ? The answer to that question is no. Now, are they part of the process? Yes. But let me explain it how Lee Strobel did. Lee Strobel, very popular author, very popular um, apologist and a, a pastor. And he says it like this. There's really a big difference be between believing that Jesus is the Savior or, or that Jesus rose from the dead or, or that God exists. There's a huge difference between believing that and then believing in. believing in Jesus as your Savior, trusting in him, believing in the God that exists and is real and has given us his word. Those are two huge different things. My pastor has actually taken this concept a little further, and, and I like this too. This is a more personal, you know, side note here, but um, instead of just even, even, even believing just in God, how about just believing God? How about just living every day with, with, with a huge amount of faith? How about just taking God at his word and saying, yes, this is true. So I am going to, whatever it is you struggle with your life, I am going to overcome this sin. I am going to give more, right? I am going to help others and put others before myself, right? I am going to pray fervently and believe that something can actually happen, right? 
actually going even further. So you've got sort of this uh, believing that Jesus, believing in Jesus, and then just believing Jesus. And I think those are three um, levels that are, they're each distinct and they each matter more. Um, because if you just believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's not good enough. You have to believe in Jesus as your savior. So at that point, you're a Christian. And then to really take hold of the Christian life and apply it to your daily, everyday living, that's where you just believe Jesus, right? You just believe every word that he said is true. And uh, and actually not just believe it, but but actually act on it in your everyday life. So God wants faith from people, not blind faith. Again, it can be reasoned faith. It should be, I think, reasoned faith. Uh, I, I don't think the the idea here, and I don't think what Wise is getting at here, is just is just believing in something that that there is no way to understand with any sort of logic or whatever. I don't think that's what he's getting at. Um, sure, there are going to be things like that that we just can't understand and, and that we do need to place our faith in. I, I totally get that. But logic and evidence alone aren't going to give us everything that we need. We need to take that step of faith further. And that's what the book of Hebrews seems to require. Without faith, it is impossible to, to believe. It is impossible to please God. What is faith? Well, faith, the Greek word pistis, is basically trusting in what we have good reason to believe is true. Okay? Simply put, faith is like trust. Trusting that we have good reason to believe what is true. Okay? Or trusting in what we have good reason to believe is true. So let's not resist this explanation of things, okay? Yes, intentional ambiguity. God built it into the fabric of creation. Let's just realize this and, and, and get this from the outset that sometimes we're not going to be able to come to full grasp with the physical evidence or, or come to full grasp with, um, with believing God in, in spite of physical evidence. And, and that is where faith really takes over. Um, Dr. Wise actually has a fantastic lecture on this. Uh, I think I talked about it in the last episode. I recorded it a couple of weeks ago though now, so I can't remember exactly. But just this... Um, uh, podcast or not podcast, but a, a, a talk that he gave, uh, and it was on faith, and it, it talked about one of the the theories that he came up with, um, called the floating forest theory. That um, you know, it, it seemed it, basically it seemed like all the evidence was stacked up for evolution and against creation, and then he came up with a new theory from the creation angle that seems to explain everything even better than the evolution angle. And for him, as a you know younger scientist at that time. Um, he did. He had to exercise quite a bit of faith. And he talks about this in that lecture. And it's extremely helpful. So you can go to YouTube and just type in floating forest theory. Uh, and you'll probably find it. It's a Truett McConnell lecture by Kurt Wise and definitely worth um, worth watching. Another sort of, by, by the way, here is um, that, that loads of objections to biblical faith are actually answered by the Bible itself. Okay, so a lot of people always want to zoom out, right? They want to come away from the Bible and they want to say, oh, well, you know, these, you know, whatever, these, you know, Tertullian and, um, you know, Pliny the Younger and all these other extra biblical writers, they, they provide support for these things. Everybody wants to go outside of the Bible. And I'm saying, well, a lot of the same questions that people are, ans are, are asking today and thinking about today, the Bible answers them, okay? 
For example, you know, people say, oh, well, you Christians, you just want your get out of hell free card. So once you have that, you know, you can go on and sin and just do whatever you want to do. And it's like, well, no, that's actually not the case because the Apostle Paul answered that. He said, wait, should 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 we receive this grace so that we could just go on sinning? And he said, no, God forbid. Like, because we are recipients of this grace, we now should not sin. And, and that desire should be gone. And, and we should be people who um, who fight for, for purity, who fight for holiness, um, not because of some rule book, but because God gave us his grace as his gift. So lots of things. You know, the doubt of the apostles, for example, in the resurrection of Jesus. These are things where it's like, yeah, like, even the even the apostles doubted the resurrection happening, right? But they came to believe based on the physical eyewitness evidence that they saw. So lots of objections to biblical faith are actually answered by the Bible itself. So I would advise you to lean into the Bible. Um, another kind of excursus that we could go down here, and uh, I was going to actually read a pretty big um, uh, passage here from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, but for time's sake, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, basically, it's the problem of divine hiddenness, divine hiddenness, and it's this idea that um, God is not there, right? That 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 God seems to be hidden. We pray, and maybe we don't get an obvious answer for our prayers, etc. And, and so, I would invite you to go read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the problem of divine hiddenness. You can go check that out. Um, but to kind of give you some thoughts, you know, one might say again that it's a problem for Christianity, but what Wise is arguing is that this is built into Christianity, okay? This problem of divine hiddenness, so-called problem, is built into Christianity. It's there on purpose. Those who seek will find. Those who knock, that door will be open. But if there's no seeking and there's no knocking, then there is going to be no finding. Again, lots of Lots of problems, so-called problems, are things that are just built into Christianity. For example, the, the fact that the world is in turmoil, sin, evil, death, destruction. These are outcomes that should not be a surprise. People, people talk about them as challenges to the Christian worldview, but they're actually expectations of the biblical worldview, of the Christian worldview. So we lean into that because these things are actually evidence for our view not necessarily a challenge to them. Another point to make here is that one's experience of God being hidden is subjective. Um, it, God in my life is not hidden. I experience his presence on a regular uh, basis. And as we talked about already, God's word rightly declares that no one is going to be able to excuse themselves on judgment day. They have been given enough evidence to justify um, or to be justly held accountable. In creation, which is something that you, again, will see in Romans 1, 18 through 20, and then also in conscience, which is in Romans 2, 14 through 16. God has baked this in to the fabric of the world, and he's baked this in to the fabric of our minds and our hearts. It's an unavoidable conclusion. Yes, God can be perceived by some as being hidden. To others, he's a very present help, as the Bible says, in the time of trouble. But now, what does this have to do with science? Again, we're setting up the faith angle first here, but what does it have to do with science? Well, there are practical implications for this. So let's talk through a little bit of that. He says this, another example of creation's ambiguity 
that has strong application in the sciences is found in 2 Peter 3, 3-7. This passage predicts that people will reject Christ's return, verse 3, claiming that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, verse 4. Phrased differently, these people believe in unchanging natural laws, processes, rates, and conditions. When such a person tries to infer anything about the past, he assumes the past looks like the present, so he studies the present to reconstruct the past, a method called uniformitarianism. So, Wise's point there, of course, is that, yeah, there's some ambiguity going on here. There's some intentional ambiguity and some implications for this because some people are going to look at the creation and have a completely different view from the creationists, especially from the young age creationists, right? So you're going to have people, and there are Christians and non-Christians, who take what we call uniformitarianism. And that's what he was describing there when he said the people who believe in unchanging natural laws, processes, rates, and conditions. These people see something in creation that is very different from what the creationist sees in creation. And and some Christians have objected to this as well. I mean, in the sense that some Christians believe in uniformitarianism. Dr. Hugh Ross likes to use Jeremiah 33, 25 as a, uh, as, a, as a way to point to the fact that even for Christians, we should believe in uniformitarianism. But, and I, I frankly, I have a hard time believing that that verse necessarily teaches that. But even if it did, what you have to reckon with is that God does not promise anything like an orderly creation until after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. That's when he says that the earth is going to continue in seed time and in harvest and, 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 the, and the seasons. So um, we have to realize that anything prior to or anything after uh, the, the flood, yeah, we can sort of expect you know, the reasonableness of, 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 of the laws, conditions, and all of this, processes, rates. But before then, and leading up through the flood year, it's almost like anything goes. And that's very uneasy for many apologists. Many apologists don't want to go there because they, they fear it opens them up to, to last Thursdayism or something, which is the view that, oh, well, how do you know that um, the world wasn't created just last Thursday, basically? Just pick any random time and God could make it appear as though the world was created at a certain time with, with a certain degree of maturity. And again, um, you know, what, well, what is my specific answer to that? Well, I'd have to think about it a little more, um, but we can trust God's word. If you're a Christian, you presumably take God at his word, and the way the word outlines it is that prior to God instituting the, the you know, the sort of consistency of nature, which was uh, after the flood, like prior to that time, there's no promise, there's no guarantee of a particular um, order of creation. So, you know, you're kind of left with what the Bible says about it. And, and you know, is that a bad thing? Well, I don't think so. Now, so if we continue on here with, with Dr. Wise, he says, however, verses five through seven tell us that these kinds of conclusions are invalid because of one thing. God intervenes in history, such as in the creation, the flood, and the judgment to come. So the ambiguity of the creation results in the failure of strict uniformitarianism, which might explain the long-term response to the uniformity of natural law, process, geological rate, a geological condition believed and advocated by Charles Lyell in the early 19th century. 
the uniformity of geological condition seems never to be have come, or excuse me, seems to never have become popular even in Lyle's day. The uniformity of geological rate, popular in the geological community for one and a half centuries, has gradually been rejected. And there are more, like you even see it popping up sometimes on Joe Rogan and other places. Like catastrophism is coming back. And more and more you see these these studies happen of you see these well-preserved fossils. And in like 90 plus percent of the cases, 90% plus of these cases, you see um the, the attribution is water. It is it's some water, some localized flood event or whatever. And and all of these begin to pop up, and after a while, you just start to ask yourself, you know, instead of all these little mini isolated events over billions and millions of years, um, maybe it was just one big one. And again, you have people who are not willing to look at the evidence for that. But for those who are willing to look at the evidence for that, it's a reasonable explanation. So let's zoom out again. Let's ask a big question here that, that, that sort of he goes into. It, it's like, what, if anything, like what is the hope for man? If creation is ambiguous, are some people just destined to go a certain direction, et cetera? You know, what, what is the deal there? And Wise sort of responds like this. Does this ambiguity mean that God does not wish for us to come to him? Truly, many people have doubted the existence of God because of the absence of logical and evidential proofs, because God hasn't just come out and said so. Yet even though this ambiguity is placed in the creation for a reason we have already discussed, because God requires faith, he does place intriguing evidences of himself in the creation and offers faith to all who seek it, close quote. So is there hope for man? Of course. There is evidence in the creation for those who seek it and wish to find it. There is a faith that he will give you. There is a, you, you, you can have faith and trust. The Bible says that God has dealt to every man a measure of faith, okay? He's built the mechanism into you to respond positively to his call, to respond to the gospel, to respond to the evidence that you see. And so, sure, in one sense, the creation is ambiguous, but in another sense, it's obvious. From the macro, right, looking at the biggest stars and planets and galaxies to the micro, looking at the smallest, the, the beautiful, intricate design of a single cell. It's just amazing to see the evidence, the fingerprints of God all in creation. Now, any well-formulated doctrine of creation really must account for this. And, and we're going to see from, from actually later studies in the book that this intentional ambiguity will probably contribute some to the divide between creationists and mainstream scientists. In fact, we looked at that a little bit already uh, today. Now, next time, what we're going to look at is the role of, of science in interpreting the Bible. And this is a big one. I talked about this a while ago on the podcast, and I do think it's time to bring it back up in the context of this particular study. We're going to answer questions like this. Does science directly inform our interpretation of the Bible? What happens when the Bible and science seem to disagree. That's going to be interesting. And then should Christians even try to harmonize science in the Bible? Or is such a thing ultimately fruitless and hopeless? So I hope you'll stay around um, for that episode of the podcast. Again, we'll come around to that episode next week, and I will totally be looking forward to it. I hope you're enjoying this study so far. Again, just two episodes in, uh, and this is really the first meaty episode of it, but uh, I've enjoyed it, and I hope you're enjoying it too. God bless. Tell somebody about the podcast. 
the Bible Nerd Podcast. I mean, this is just the place, I think. It's it's so much fun and hopefully getting even more fun as days go by. So I have some guests lined up that are going to be coming on soon to talk about different things. Super excited about those as well. So it's an exciting time to be a Bible nerd. God bless, and we'll see y'all soon.